The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Dr. Suzanne Kearns. Dr. Suzanne Kearns is an Associate Professor of Aviation at the University of Waterloo. She is an internationally recognized leader in aviation education research, has earned airplane and helicopter pilot licenses by the age of 17, has advanced aeronautical degrees from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and began working as an aviation professor upon graduation at the age of 24. In the years since, she has taught and mentored thousands of aviation students, written and co-authored six books, including Competency-Based Education in Aviation, which was the first detailed investigation into this training theory applied to aviation, and Fundamentals of International Aviation, which is a textbook with multiple translations used in flight schools, colleges, and universities around the world to introduce youth to the field of aviation. She has received several awards for research and educational works, frequently delivers invited keynote addresses at international aviation conferences and holds leadership positions with several international aviation organizations, including supporting the Next Generation of Aviation Professionals Program with the International Civil Aviation Organization, is a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society, and as past president of the University Aviation Association. I am truly honored to have her joining me today. Welcome, Dr. Kearns. Thank you for having me. Now, how did you get your start in aviation? Uh, I was a kid who who loved everything about aviation. Um, I I grew up in Wyerton, Ontario, which I think most people know because we're the groundhog capital of Canada. We have a, an albino groundhog that predicts the weather, so that's that's our claim to fame. But I actually grew up just outside of Wyerton, um, just right under the circuit path of the airport. And so my child at home, where was continually uh, small aircraft circling overhead. And so when we used to, uh, we had a trampoline in the backyard. And so we had, I remember just lying on the trampoline and just watching the airplanes uh, go overhead. Um, and I would always tell my family, like, that's me one day. I'm going to do that. And uh, they were incredibly supportive. Um, at this point, almost surprisingly supportive because I now have a 15-year-old daughter. Uh, but when I was 15 and I sort of expressed this to my family, uh, they signed me up for flight lessons at the age of 15 and I soloed on my 16th birthday. Um, at that time, you had to be 17 to hold a license. Um, there was no reckless. It was just a private pilot license. Um, so I had um, that signed off on my 17th birthday. But before I turned 17, I'd finished all of the the requirements for the license and I was waiting for my birthday and uh, my parents let me uh, move to Toronto and I lived out of a hangar at Buttonville Airport and fly helicopters over the summer. Um, so to, I got all of the credentials for my um, private helicopter license uh, during that summer and my birthday's in September so I had them both signed off in September on my 17th birthday. Um, so after that, I, I didn't uh, didn't know what the next steps would be, but I ended up going to Canada College in North Bay, Ontario. They had a one-year helicopter pilot program, uh, which is a really cool program. Like you're uh, flying in the bush, and they do 
uh, winter survival training where you like snowshoe in and you build your own shelters uh, then teach you how to hunt I was never good at that um, and and you got our we got our chainsaw operator certificate and they taught us how to like cut down trees in the bush to build uh, pads so we could come in and land um, and then at the end uh, of that one-year program, uh, I, for the first time, encountered uh, some of the challenges in aviation because no one had ever told me that entry-level helicopter pilot jobs in Canada usually are in bush camps. And uh, most bush camps don't have facilities for men and women. You know, everybody lives and shares the same bathroom and everything. And so it's a little challenging um, to be a female helicopter pilot to get that first job. Um, so I ended up trying to figure out you know, what would be next instead. Um, and at that time, there were no university aviation programs in Canada. They, they didn't exist. There were college programs, but I just finished a college uh, program. I was wanting, you know, to take that next step. Uh, so I ended up going to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. And I did uh, my bachelor's degree there in aeronautical science and the rest of my fixed wing ratings. Now, I know you're saying sort of in hindsight, how incredible and incredibly supportive your parents would have been now having a 15 year old uh, yourself looking back and thinking they just signed me right up into aviation the way that they did. So I think <laughs> your parents sound pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. It's interesting because they they started their own business, so they're entrepreneurs, and and um, I think at one point they sort of thought that we would follow their footsteps and and run their company or, or work with them in their company, uh, my siblings and myself. But then um, you know as we started to develop our own interests, they really did sort of lean into the idea that you guys you know you should follow your own passion and your own dreams and and not necessarily the same dreams that they had. Uh, so I'm trying to do that with my kids as well. That so far. Despite some nudges, uh, none of my three children have expressed an interest in aviation, despite going to air shows and a lot of aviation talk around the house and, and strategically placed aviation books. <laughs> um, but that's OK, because I, I really do you know, want them to find their own path. Now, by the age of 17, held both a rotary and fixed wing license. What was it like to have both in tandem? Um, it's different. So I think anybody who's flown fixed and rotary would sort of uh, would probably agree that the the hands and feet of, of flying helicopters is much more challenging uh, than in, in fixed wing aircraft. But the, it, with that challenge comes this amazing freedom, like the the idea that you could literally go anywhere. And I think that's that sense of freedom is is what's so enticing. Uh, but there were some obstacles in figuring out how to uh, effectively fly um, those kinds of devices and, and as well with the financial cost as well. So there's no denying that helicopters are more expensive to operate. So there's a significant financial investment. Um, and actually, when I went on to university in the States, I wasn't able to keep my rotary wing licenses current because uh, sort of the, the cost of it. So when I was flying um, fixed wing ratings and I was getting my uh, commercial multi-IFR, um, it just wasn't sort of a lot of extra resources to to fly rotary for fun. Um, so it, it's it's a challenge in a lot of ways, but I think the people who do it love it. And I think um, it really does pay off um, from that perspective. Within aviation, there are often discussions surrounding the idea of human factors. Where did the uh, discussion surrounding human factors really begin? Um, well, I, I can share with you how I was sort of interested in human factors and then where human factors itself began. But um, 
when I finished my degree at Embry-Riddle, um, during the course of that degree, there was uh, really tragically a student who was involved in an, a training accident and, and was um, unfortunately killed. And um, a colleague of mine at that time was an instructor uh, who was actually responding to the accident because um, at that training school, a lot of flights, they'll go from sort of the main airport and they'll go to a smaller airport when they're doing circuits and, and different practice activities. So it's at one of these smaller airports and the instructor was flying separately with their student when it happened and, and they responded and they were sort of kicking the, the window uh, and the door trying to access um, the person who was in the accident. And days and weeks afterwards, they had sort of remarked that um, every time they look at their shoes and they'd see the scuffs on their shoes, that the, all of those feelings and all those emotions were brought back. Um, myself, I'd sort of finished my degree and I was interning with the Continental Airlines at Houston. And so I had jump seat privileges. So every weekend I was like flying uh, in the jump seat in the cockpit um, all over the world. I went to, to Europe and uh, all over the States and Canada. Um, but it really did give me that taste of sort of what it's like to be an airline pilot. And, and I found myself questioning if that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And, and probably I was influenced by the accident that had happened as well. So everything sort of happened at once. And I started questioning, you know, if I'm not a pilot or if that's not what I'm meant to do with the rest of my life, then what, what could I do? Like, how can I still love aviation and be passionate about aviation and and apply that to a job. So so I ended up going back to school at Embry-Riddle and getting my master's in human factors and systems engineering. Um, so that was my educational path into human factors. But the, the origin of human factors traces all the way back to World War II. So there's a, a famous story of uh, World War II pilots where they had actually re-engineered the entire cockpit in the middle of the war. Uh, so they had sort of assumed that the pilots would know how to fly it. Uh, but there's this really famous story of all the pilots sort of sitting around on call and then the air raid sirens go off and they all run out to their aircraft. And one who was the very last to reach uh, his aircraft, he jumped in and it had just been delivered a few days prior and he looked around and he realized the entire cockpit had been redesigned. So all of the instrumentation was in different places. Um, so he really quickly decided that he couldn't fly it. Uh, so instead what he was gonna do is just taxi it around the airbase and trying to evade uh, the, the bombs that were, were being uh, sort of dropped by the enemy. So he did that, he just sort of taxied in circles uh, around the base and ended up saving the aircraft. But it's a really good lesson in the idea that that it doesn't really matter if you build systems that work if they're not considered of the person who's going to use them, right? So, so it's not just about a functional system. It's about the interface between the human and the system. And that's really what human factors is, is really trying to understand what are the challenges in designing a system and what are the limitations of people and how can both sides of that equation be considerate of the other side. I know for myself, uh, by no means is it the same thing, but my interest in human factors came from watching Mayday episodes. I wanted to know as a little kid watching them, if I could figure it out before the investigators on the show did, and also what were the human factors going into the accident beyond just maybe the mechanical challenges that the crew faced. So it does seem, at least just in our cases, that it came from an incident and an accident that wanted to know more about the human uh, involved in the decisions and challenges that they were facing throughout the flight seems to sort of be where that interest came from. Yeah, and and I think like if you look at the history of sort of the accident rate in aviation that through the 60s and 70s, there was a significantly higher number of accidents. And then they were really effective in sort of identifying what are the structural weaknesses or the mechanical weaknesses on aircraft 
And when you identify those, you can put out airworthiness directives and, and you can really effectively eliminate that source of risk on all of the, the aircraft fleet. Uh, but the human is kind of this this remaining challenge. Like it's really hard to fully understand and eliminate every risk of being a human being. Like we get tired and we get overwhelmed and and we can lose focus. Uh, it's almost like saying, you know, why can't we have absolutely zero automobile accidents? You know, like why can't we perfectly eliminate all risk? And uh, so we often will say that you know that human errors the primary cause of 70 to 80 percent of accidents. Uh, but the reality is it's not about blaming the people because that doesn't make the industry safer, right? Like blaming the person and when you're pointing the finger at them or maybe they get fired or removed from a company usually doesn't eliminate the underlying risk because it's probably associated with their training or their operational environment or the scheduling that they're associated with or uh, perhaps maintenance factors. Like there, there could be a variety of other underlying factors. And so I think our industry has done a really good job of recognizing that Yes, the human factor or this human element leads to the majority of accidents, but blaming the people and eliminating them or focusing on them doesn't do anything to make the industry safer. It seems that taking a more holistic approach to the human factor and the person involved is ideally the best way of going about trying to find and identify the challenges and what could have been risk factors uh, leading up into an incident or accident. Yeah, I think one of the biggest questions I sometimes get from industry is around human factors versus safety management systems. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people in industry say like, although they're the same thing, aren't they the same thing? They're not the same thing, but, but I can 100% understand why people would be confused because they're very similar. So, so the main difference between human factors and safety management systems is that human factors are based on this philosophy of human limitations. So it's about our mind and our body. So things like we can't uh, process as fast as a computer or stay awake forever without starting to make mistakes or, uh, you know, we need to feed and we need to, to, to um you know, hydrate ourselves. Uh, so all of those things are associated with just being a human being. And, you know, what I think is, is most remarkable about that is that if you take one human out and put somebody else in, you can almost predict where those mistakes are going to happen because it's so much a function of just being a human being. It's very natural. Um, and then if you look at safety management systems, this is a different, but they go together in that safety management systems are based on an organizational uh, philosophy of safety. So it, it's considering that people make mistakes and so the, it's considering the human factors, but is looking at an entire company. So everything from uh, upper management through to uh, middle management through to the people who are actually flying the aircraft and maintaining it and the training that they get. Um, because the idea is that not every source of risk that a pilot is going to face is something they're directly responsible or have control over. Right. So a, a pilot may not be able to control their schedule or the type of training or maintenance that's occurring or or a variety of other factors that are influencing that trip that they're taking on a specific day. And so the organizational approach is really looking at uh, more broadly an entire company and all of the sources of risk. And of course, reasons model is, is the most common uh, frame that's used to, to explain that where each layer is like a like layers of Swiss cheese with holes in the middle. And when those holes line up, then it, it forms an accident. Um, so that's uh, 
the organizational approach, which is leading into safety management systems. And safety management systems all about managing this organizational approach to safety and all of the risks that go into it. Um, and you know, one of the things that we do to contribute to that is uh, through incident reports. So like anonymous reports, often most students, that's what they think SMS is, is because that's the interface they have with it. Uh, but then it's all about tracking. So it's like, how many hard landings did we have last year? And how can we have fewer next year? And how can we you know, set goals and objectives and sort of this data infused process of identifying risk and eliminating it before accidents happen? So it's considerate of human factors, but different. Now, how have the concepts of human factors and crew resource management changed from their introduction to the industry during the late 1970s? Yeah. So uh, through the 60s and 70s, there were a series of really high profile aviation accidents that were primarily caused by pilot error. And it's easy for investigators after the fact to look at what happened and to sort of point the finger and say, like, how could they make such an obvious mistake? Like, how is it possible uh, that they could have done that because they're skilled and trained and seem to be competent, licensed pilots? Like, how, how can that be possible? So in 1979, NASA held a workshop and they invited industry and academia airlines regulators together to try to address like what is actually happening uh, on these flights. Uh, so they produced um, sort of the outcome from it was cockpit resource management, which is a mouthful. Like I think the, the words resource management are, aren't always intuitive to people, but it just basically means like being aware of your environment, working together as a team. Um, and then cockpit resource management, when it was first introduced, United Airlines was one of the leaders in introducing it originally. Um, there was a huge backlash against it because you can imagine the mentality of aviators has always been you know, tough it out, like, you you know, like really pride yourself on your uh, experience and your knowledge and everything you've studied. And then if we're coming in and we're saying, you know what, sometimes people make mistakes, you have to communicate and work as a team. Like it was a very different theme of training than most aviators were used to. So there was a, a significant backlash against it. Uh, a lot of aviators called it charm school uh, and sort of rejected the principles entirely um, because it was really artificial. It felt like psychology. It didn't feel like aviation. Uh, but then as it evolved, uh, it grew to be uh, more applied. So they started to do um, line-oriented flight training or loft training, where the um, scenarios that you'd get to teach you things like decision-making and workload management uh, were based in aviation cases. So, so maybe you're in a simulator and you're exposed to a real situation and you'd be you know, um, challenged to handle it effectively with your co-pilot as a team. Um, and that was a significant evolution of CRM, um, but then it, it evolved even further to what is now uh, threat and error management. Because if you think about loft scenarios, uh, in sort of the worst, most extreme situation, they're kind of canned. So maybe we produce a scenario that's about icing, but then we give that to everybody. So maybe you're flying in the desert and, and you never experience icing. So it feels it feels fake. It feels uh, sort of artificial. Whereas um, threat and error management goes through this entire process where researchers will actually observe pilots who are in operations. They'll identify like what mistakes are they most commonly making in this company and what threat are they most often encountering, maybe really specific to the type of airport they're flying to or the type of aircraft they're flying in. 
and then they compile it all together. So they they tally it up. These are the most common threats. Uh, these are the most common errors, and they'll produce CRM training, which is really explicitly targeted towards the biggest source of risk within that specific company. So you can kind of see how like its origins were sort of artificial, very sort of psychology based, not a lot of aviation, and then they grew to really be more case and scenario based, and now they're grow- growing to be really specific to each organization. And so the idea of being super specific to independent and individual organizations, that to me almost sort of sounds a lot like an advanced qualification program. The idea of having something being super specific Mm -hmm. and based on the direct threats and errors that you're seeing within that organization. Yeah, AQP is is very similar or the same thing as threat management, depending on how it's introduced and taking it one step further. So um, my understanding of AQP is that as a person goes through this training, so if they're doing these, threat error management has informed what curriculum they're getting. So like what they're doing in a simulator, uh, but then through the AQP process, their performance is rated. So you actually have an, an examiner who's giving them a score. And the, the benefit of that is that not only do you get sort of a long-term track record of as an individual pilot, what areas am I weakest in and how can I target that to improve, but also across an entire organization, you can imagine that that data would start to shine a spotlight. Like if you say, hey, of our aviators have challenges with this type of scenario. Well, that can feed into your safety management system. And then you can start to set like set goals. Say, well, by next year, we want to have this level of improvement. And and it it becomes a really sort of all-inclusive holistic process that's iterative, sort of cycles through for continuous improvement. Now, as someone who has designed human factors training courses for both pilots and aircraft maintenance engineers, how have you noticed a difference in the way both groups approach the topic and instruction? So there's more the same than there is different. Uh, and, and I didn't know a lot about um, aviation maintenance or, or sort of how it was taught for, for from a human factors perspective, because I mostly work with pilots and that's my personal experience. Um, but the reality is the the curriculum is is nearly identical, but the application is is the difference, and and that's a really really important part. Um, I think in aviation in general, we tend to separate ourselves into professional groups uh, more than we should. I, I think, uh, in my experience, when I go to conferences, I think what's universal is one of the first things that happens is people kind of go around the table and you're like, what team are you on? Are you a pilot or maintenance? Are you a flight attendant or regulator or a traffic controller? And I think people feel most comfortable in their own pockets uh, of expertise. Um, But when I was sort of uh, was developing the course for the maintenance engineers, it was a little bit different, Um, but I actually really enjoyed it because it really does provide a new lens to, you know, things that you've taught a hundred times and you're really familiar with to really challenge yourself, to put yourself in the shoes of a different professional group and ask how it relates. And it's interesting because if you look at academia, so like universities and research, uh, aviation is relatively small compared to really big fields like medicine, for example. And um, what's been interesting is that a lot of lessons learned in aviation have been applied to fields like medicine. So um, one of the, the leaders in research in CRM at Helmrich, uh, he one of his most cited articles is actually in medicine. So it's lessons from the flight deck and it's teaching surgeons about how uh, surgical theater is very similar to pilots in a flight deck. 
deck, just like they pilots have, um, you know, uh, captain and first officer, they have the flight attendants and they're communicating over the radio to air traffic control and dispatch. Uh, very similarly, a surgeon has uh, other doctors, nurses and anesthesiologists, and they have resources that they can communicate with as well. So, so it's interesting how, um, you know, expanding your, yourself to think beyond the scope of your own expertise and to learn uh, more about sort of how it applies in different ways. Um, that kind of relate in, in surprising ways as well. And, and I think aviation has a lot of expertise we can share with other fields. I know the idea that we use in my household is being uh, like a cross pollinator that you can't just take uh, training and the available resources from one cylinder of aviation, but you mm -hmm. can pan out and go into all the different ones. And I had actually taken the AME maintenance course that you had oh, created cool. uh, just out of curiosity. Yeah, It was the first time I was introduced to this official concept of the dirty dozen. Yeah, uh, It was the same idea of human factors that I had seen before from mm -hmm. the pilot perspective, but now coming and being introduced to me in a completely different way and in yeah. scenarios that I had not considered how they would be applicable before. Yeah, it's amazing how the same theory, like the same lesson, can be stretched or expanded in different ways. Now, how does having a background in both rotary and fixed-wing aircraft impact the way you teach and design human factors courses? Um, you know, it, it's interesting because I had more time in helicopters than I did in airplanes at, at a certain point when I was in training. And I, I really aligned myself as a helicopter pilot. Like I thought that was like the most amazing and exciting uh, form of aviation. Um, and it wasn't really until that I went back to school and finished my degree that I realized that even through the academic degree, there's so little rotary mixed in to the curriculum. Like it is so heavily focused on airlines and on fixed wing aviation that that general aviation is a, like a much smaller component in academia and in research and, and in, in the curriculum and and rotary even a smaller portion of that so so i don't uh i don't have no i don't have a distinct answer to your question other than that i hope it does give me a bit more perspective that there's more than one type of pilot that, that there's a lot more to aviation than, than just the airlines. Of course, they're, they're leaders and, and they do a great job in, in sort of helping us chart new paths and, and develop new lines of inquiry and new ideas. And, and they're responsible for a lot of that development. But um, my heart is still with the general aviation pilots and, and um, a lot of it with the rotary pilots as well. Your 2013 publication, Hangar Talk Survey, Using Stories as a Naturalistic Method of Informing Threat and Error Management Training, explores the impact of hangar talk on pilots who are time building. What were some of the advantages and disadvantages of hangar talk? Yeah, so if, if from what we were talking about earlier, and we were talking about threat and error management, um, what became really clear to me when you look at that literature is that it's based on what's called a line operation safety audit, which is basically just a really long term that says an expert observer flies with crew in the jump seat and tracks threats and errors. And then that data feeds back into training. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like we really want to know what challenges people are facing. We don't want to just artificially give them the same training across every organization. But if you look into the general aviation world, it's not possible, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. Like you, there aren't jump seats, let alone a bunch of expert people who uh, you could pay a large amount of money to sit and observe uh, all of the challenges that people face in the general aviation world. So, so my challenge with that publication was, well, if we can't observe it directly, what if we just ask people like, like, what if we literally went to the pilots and said, 
can you tell me a story of a time where you were challenged to think outside the box? You, you encountered something you didn't expect, you had to think on your feet, and you had to sort of work your way or problem solve through it, because those are human factors situations. Like mo most of the time, there's something in there that, that's a human factors issue, or it's a threat or an error. And, and then we got, um, I think, 130-ish uh, narrative responses, really amazing, uh, really exciting stories to read, really fun. Um, and then once we got that data, we categorized it as sort of threat and errors, as well as what types of situations uh, were being encountered. So uh, most often they're classified as things like uh, situation awareness, workload management, uh, decision making. There's not as much uh, crew stuff, of course, because we're in the general aviation world, it's a lot of single pilots, but there is communication to air traffic control uh, and other groups um, and other factors as well. So it was really um, sort of testing, um, you know, is there a cheaper, more accessible, more affordable way to collect this data to support the industry that doesn't have the same resources that a, a major airline would? Even just in terms of the idea of what do you do with that information once you have it and how can it be applied? I yeah. think about uh, the AOPA and the fact that they have, I think it's real pilot stories and also the never again podcast. Mm -hmm. And they have real accounts of pilots writing up, I guess, sort of similarly mm -hmm. uh, to what you were receiving and presenting the information. And I know I have found myself often listening or watching to one of the episodes that they create and thinking back to the fact that, oh, I will remember that that was the way someone troubleshot that in their scenario, or that was something I wouldn't have considered before. So even though that's sort of a very disconnected way of having the idea of sort of hangar talk, uh, you can still learn a lot just from listening to the stories of other pilots. Yeah, and I feel like we sometimes undervalue the power of stories. Like I think there, there's literature on stories and, and the power of stories and in conveying and teaching. And, and I think all of us, if you think about like the most powerful teacher we've ever had, probably we remember the stories they told or how they made us feel or, or how they uh, made connections for us. And they sort of walked us along a journey, you know, from a beginning to an end. It's a story. And and so, um, you know, we told stories to convey all of our human history before we had written language. So I think sometimes we, we undervalue some of these sort of basic principles in learning and we try to get really technical and we forget the basics. And um, people like stories. I, I've done enough teaching to tell you. <laughs> but if I was to just read slides in a classroom, I would lose 100% of everyone's interest within 10 minutes. Um, but if I have connections, and if I can tell them why things matter, and that it's real, that it's really affected people, there's no need for you to make the same mistake someone else has already made. They've come up with a solution. You should just learn the solution. And actually, I want to plug um, ASARS, the Aviation Safety Reporting System, that they also have uh, in the States. It's an anonymous uh, reporting system operated by NASA. Uh, they have some really great newsletters as well. So I often uh, recommend my students check those out, particularly if you're an aviation student and you are maybe you need to write a paper about fatigue or, or something that's a human issue. There's really great narratives there that you can draw from. Even just jumping back to the idea of the way you would promote and suggested teaching from the textbook you wrote, Fundamentals of International Aviation, trying to take the stories and the anecdotes from the textbook and apply them to a domestic uh, context for students, wherever it was in the world that they were reading that. Uh, having a domestic context also adds a level of interest and uh, memory for people. If it can be something that, for whatever reason, sticks with them, whether it's local or they can imagine themselves more in that scenario, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Like, and, and the, the textbook actually started 
sort of the opposite in that I, I wrote my first book I ever wrote was called Canadian Aviation, and it was a not so successful textbook. <laughs> I don't remember what year it came out, but it's out of print now. Um, and it was it was really sort of the origin of the textbook, which is now Fundamentals of International Aviation. But um, but in that book, it was the same idea, which is I, I found myself in trying to teach aviation to students in first year that I, I wanted to get away from teaching pilots to be pilots. Uh, I wanted to say, like, let me give you a snapshot of how the whole industry works and how the pieces fit together so that it makes you a better aviator because then you can respect and understand all the different roles and how they function. Um, and so in that book, I, I feel like I made a lot of mistakes <laughs> in writing it. Um, and then after that, uh, that textbook, I wrote two academic books. I wrote one called e-learning in aviation and another uh, competency-based education in aviation. And when I finished that, I just started at Waterloo because I, I was previously at the University of Western Ontario. And I was sort of thinking like, what's my next project? And I knew that like, I really wanted to revisit this Canadian aviation textbook, but it, it never really took off. It was sort of a kind of floundered a bit. Um, and so I remember uh, I got the chance to meet a really established textbook author in geography on campus. And I said, do you have any advice? Like, what can I do? Um, you know, because this is going to take two years of my life. I'd really love it for it to be, you know, be used by people uh, for that to be worthwhile. And he said, can you think about how to make the market bigger? Like, is there is there a way where you could write a book that would be uh, relevant to people even beyond Canada? Um, and so that's where the idea came from. And I thought maybe, but but there really wasn't um, wasn't a book like that, that that took like an international perspective um, on how the industry works. Um, so I spent a little over two years writing the book um, and I would write every day. Like I'd have a, a chart and my, my goal is to write 30 minutes a day um, every day, which I did most, most days, <laughs> not every day, but most days. Um, and uh, yeah, and that book's been uh, a real passion project. And you mentioned Mayday episodes and uh, that was sort of what my family and I would do every night is we would as a family like watch Mayday episodes and my husband would be on the lookout like oh, I found a really good case study you should look up this one because every chapter in the book has a variety of cases in it of accidents that happened that are linked back to the content of the chapter and it's really about trying to make it a story so people understand that these are not just concepts in a book, but these are real things that that you can learn lessons from and learn lessons from the past. Um, and uh, yeah, so that book was really a part of my family. Um, and now it's uh, I wrote the second edition actually during the pandemic. Uh, so it'll come out in March. So I'm excited about that. But it's it's in multiple translations now and it's used uh, all around the world to introduce people to aviation. So it's been it's been pretty fun. In 2020, you were the lead editor of the book, Engaging the Next Generation of Aviation Professionals, which is credited as being the first academic work on this topic. What do you think is the biggest challenge in the aviation industry when it comes to personnel retention? I think we have a history in aviation of exploitative labor practices. I think we sort of rested on the idea that aviation is like amazing and exciting and everybody should be, you know, grateful to have the opportunity to work in aviation. I can tell you that's how young people feel. Like the, the students that I teach, they're passionate. Like they're not like, well, maybe I'll, I'll have a career in aviation. They love aviation and they're excited to learn about it and to move forward. But then the next part is not so exciting. The next part where pilots are paid very low wages, there's a high level of job insecurity, and we really expect young people to sort of map the process from education to getting that first job almost on their own. Like, like there's some support that we've built in different ways, but there's a lot that they have to do on their own. Uh, and if you compare that again, like to the medical sector that 
I've been working with a colleague uh, in the United Kingdom uh, on a project called Engaging the Next Generation of Aviation Professionals. It's basically taking the book to the next step and how we can continue that work. And he's shared that in the medical field in the United Kingdom, starting from like middle school, all the way through to being a surgeon, that they've mapped, they call it a sector ladder, sort of each step along the journey, these are the different paths you can take and if different decision points where you can sort of navigate um, in different sort of directions, whether you wanna be a different type of surgeon uh, or a different type of doctor, um, but they really do invest in supporting people and helping them understand like this is the journey uh, to get where you wanna go, because if you think about it, it really doesn't make sense that we ask 16 or 17 year old uh, young people to navigate a system that myself as a 41 year old would have difficulty articulating, but we expect them to just know how to do it on their own. Um, so engaging the next generation of uh, generation of aviation professionals was an edited volume. So what that means is that un unlike the other books where I, I write it all myself, uh, what I did is I asked people around the world and more than 50 people contributed uh, case studies and academic chapters around the issue of how do we attract, educate, and retain people in aviation careers. And, and this really did build on the work uh, of ICAO. So ICAO is the special agency of the United Nations, and, and they have their NGAP committee. Uh, it's been around, I think, since 2009, and I, I was vice chair of the group for, for a while. Um, but it really was to take the next step to say that it's not just uh, committee work. I see it as an academic discipline. And uh, that may not seem uh, intuitive to people, but if you think about human factors, before human factors was a discipline where industry and the regulators and academia can all kind of unite that, hey, these are the targets we need to focus on. Let's all pull in the same direction. Until you get that kind of direction and momentum, it's really hard to tackle problems that don't seem to fit in aviation because human factors issues didn't really seem to fit in aviation before everybody agreed that they did and started working together. And I think that NGAP issues are kind of the same, like issues around uh, attracting and retaining people, it's marketing and outreach, it's diversity and inclusion and equity, it's, um, you know, professional retention, um, as well as like the entire science of education, like how people learn and how to optimize, how people learn using things like competency-based education methods, but also technologies like augmented and virtual reality and machine learning. Um, and the reason why I think if, if we really stop and reflect, a lot of these unanswered questions in aviation I think they're unanswered because we don't have this umbrella concept that sort of unites everybody together to start targeting them and then building momentum towards making progress on it. So, so when I say like, I think NGAP is a discipline, that's what I mean. As I, I mean, it like it's this umbrella concept that if we could collectively agree that this is like, you know, just kind of how human factors evolve, that this is a different idea, but instead it, it looks at a variety of different issues. We can all agree those are important, unanswered questions, uh, untackled issues, like particularly around things like gender diversity and, and ethnic diversity, um, but many others as well. Like the, the idea that a lot of, I think, professional aviators develop a feeling of resentment over the course of their career. They feel like there's some level of exploitation uh, at some points in their career. The fact that that happens to people is an issue that we can target and we can learn lessons from other fields. We don't need to sort of reinvent the wheel and solve everything from scratch. Um, and that's uh, that's what I've been working at building 
at the University of Waterloo is that I'm working on um, joining together researchers from a variety of disciplines across campus. Um, so I started um, what we're calling the Waterloo Aviation Research Cluster in September of 2019. And already we, we have about 20 uh, researchers from across campus, everybody from experts in environmental science who are looking at like electric uh, powered aircraft for flight training uh, through to experts in uh, computer science and artificial intelligence and machine learning, looking at how we optimize how people learn and supporting pilots at the beginning of their journey um, through to uh, really amazing issues like around technology. So there, there's a lot of relevant expertise that we have, and it's really about mobilizing it and applying it to aviation so that we can, again, not start looking at NGAP um, from the ground floor from the beginning, but really start from the middle by drawing in all of this multidisciplinary innovation and uh, supporting our industry, particularly as we're working through this pandemic and we're looking at post-pandemic recovery. What aviation research do you predict will become a focus in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, well, I hope that NGAP as a focus area of research uh, takes off. Um, I would see, so the, the NGAP book that we produced, it was sort of ironic because it came out in March of 2020, which as a time that like a, not a lot of energy was rightfully being paid to um, attracting, educating and retaining people in aviation careers. It was the opposite. Of course, there were people were being furloughed all over the place. Um, and so initially when that book came out, I was sort of fearful and kind of like, oh gosh, that seems like really terrible timing. Uh, but then one of my colleagues said, he said, no, it's not because look at what's happening to our industry. Like there are reports of uh, pilots being laid off and committing suicide. Like people were suffering, right? Like like a lot of pain uh, and, and a lot of difficulty. Uh, and I think if anything, that really highlights the need to really focus on the people and, and aspects of our profession and how we support uh, ourselves and we support each other uh, during these times. And, and that ties directly into NGAP as a research area. Um, and, and so, so we've been uh, continuing that work, and I, I hope that in the future we get more books and journal articles and uh, lots of different streams of research. Um, the colleague that I've been collaborating with in the UK has created a not-for-profit organization called NGAPS, or E-N-G-A-P, or Engaging the Next Generation of Aviation Professionals in the UK. Uh, here in Canada, I'm building uh, NGAP Canada into our, uh, what I hope will be a research institute at, at the University of Waterloo, where we really focus on sustainability in aviation. Uh, and there's a colleague who's building NGAP in the USA as well. So, so these are kind of bubbling up, which is really exciting. But when it comes back to sort of what's the focus of research, the reason why I say sustainability is because uh, I think that that's a concept that unites the big challenges ahead that sustainability has the three pillars of the economic factors. Of course, if businesses don't make money, then nothing else matters because they'll go out of business and they'll be grounded, but it's balanced with the environmental factors and the social factors. And the social factors are all about the NGAP issues and the other issues that I've been speaking about. There's some human factors, but, but a lot of the NGAP stuff, because it's really about how do we make this a job that's good for people today and will be good for people as well in the future? Um, the environmental issues are really critical, and I think that that's going to be a main focus area uh, of what uh, aviation research has to be in the future. Um, and, and it was really illustrated to me because when I was trained, like aviation and environmentalism were, were not even on the same campus, right? Like, like these completely different um, philosophies and, and sets of, of ideas. But when I um, was teaching students last year, I had one of them come up to me and he said, 
you know, I'm, I feel sad because my fellow students say, why would you like aviation? Because aviation's a polluter. Like, like, why would you want to be affiliated with an industry that's hurting people? And, and that was a, a real light bulb moment for me because, um, we really need to craft an aviation industry that is supporting the next generation and their ideologies and their needs, uh, rather than necessarily supporting, um, you know, the older generation's ideas of what the aviation industry should be. Really, we need to merge them together. But that level of insight that that's really, I think, valuable for us in aviation to really understand that people don't want to be a part of aviation if it's seen to be a polluter. So, um, the environmental sustainability is, is, equally as important, if not more important. Um, but that's why sort of when I look at a research institute, I would think about it as sort of under the umbrella term of a sustainable aviation. Outside of your research, what are some things in aviation you enjoy? Um, well, right now it's sort of limited to May Day episodes <laughs> or writing. Um, but I, I think more than anything, I'm, I'm a teacher first. Uh, I really enjoy teaching. I think that um, you know, being able to share things that you enjoy with other people and help guide them on their path. I think um, if there's anything I can look back on on my career and feel like I'm I'm proud of or I'm happy that I was able to do, it's that um, people encounter roadblocks in aviation careers. When when I was uh, just finishing my bachelor's degree and about to start my master's in that transition phase, uh, that's right when 9-11 happened as well. So very similar to young people now who have been sort of diverted off course because of the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, not sure what the future holds. Uh, that's very much what my generation went through. I, I know emotionally what that's like, uh, as well as intellectually trying to figure out what's the next step and how, how can I move forward? Um, and so I, I often work with students and, and sort of figuring out what the next step is. Um, and I think that's the part that I like the most. Like, I, I'm not a Necessarily, you know, I know some people love like aircraft recognition and, and people love the the act of flying and different things. But I think, um, you know, if you told my 17 or 16 year old self that I would be an academic who writes books and teaches, I'd say you're crazy. <laughs> That's not even close to what I want to do. Um, but it, it is I really do feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and uh, having young people write to me from all over the world and and say that they've used my books and it's helped them or, or it's given them insight into a job that they might not have considered uh, in aviation or they lost their medical or something and they thought they wanted to be a pilot and they didn't know what to do but then they read the book and they, they learned about maybe air traffic control or airport operations or, or you know all of the many like diverse careers in our industry um, that that's the most touching thing for me. In 2019 you were awarded the education award from the Northern Lights Aero Foundation. What was that experience like? Uh, it was very humbling. Um, there's a lot of really powerful, uh, wonderful, amazing women who are in that organization. And to feel like uh, they recognized the work that I had done really felt full circle because like I remember being the one, you know, like, who was young and going to conferences and seeing the people on stage and thinking like, how did you do that? And that's so amazing. Tell me what you know. <laughs> you know like, oh, tell me all your secrets. Um, and and trying the very best I could to to learn as much as I could from them and and um, understand what led them to be successful and and what that meant for them. Uh, so to have an opportunity um, to try to do that for others, I think I understand the responsibility of that. Um, that that meant a lot. And I, I hope that 
um, some of the, the things that I shared were helpful to people, but uh, no more than anything, I think it was just very touching. I think it's a, it's a big thing to invest yourself to give back to other people. Um, so it's pretty cool. You know, all, all the, the amazing women in our industry who do that for others. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? I've had a lot of, of mentors over the years. Uh, I've had um, the, the majority were, were, were male. So uh, I have a, a really amazing mentor named uh, Victor Ujimoto, who was a professor at Western when they hired me. And when they hired me, you can imagine as like a 24 year old kid, <laughs> they, uh, uh, they asked him to chair the advisory board and to not teach. And then I, I started teaching human factors, which previously was his course. And I think in some situations that would cause someone to maybe not like me so much or, or not, not be rooting for me to succeed. Um, but he's never been anything but supportive and lovely to me. And he was the only other real academic who was dedicated to aviation that I knew uh, when I was coming up in my career. Um, so he helped me sort of understand the journals and the uh, professional associations and and through his connections uh, like I, I did um, connect with the University Aviation Association and then I was elected president of the association uh, after a few years and I just finished my my term as past president um, but it was him who who opened that door and who introduced me to some of those areas and he really still uh, he attends a lot of the women in aviation events and he still is supporting and mentoring uh, young women in aviation usually he's the only uh, man in the room <laughs> at a lot of the events um, so I, I've been really fortunate to have him in my life I look up to him uh, but I also like a lot of the the women associated with the the Northern Lights Awards. Um, those are some amazing, powerful women, and and all of the recipients that they identify. Um, you know, you kind of think you know the lay of the land, like who the different people are in aviation and aerospace, and they find these like amazingly qualified and and uh, impactful people. Um, so it, it's it's really cool, and a lot of my energy now is focused on the younger people like i feel like it's my responsibility uh to support them um but i i don't uh lose sight of the idea that you know there's a lot of amazing pioneers that came before us as well what advice would you have for a young person considering aviation as a career uh, i would say that uh number one there's a lot more careers in aviation than you probably even realize so if you find that you have uh, interests or talents that don't seem to fit together. Like maybe you love the environment and you're very passionate about environmental protection and you love aviation. Those things aren't necessarily at odds with each other. You could be an aviator who helps chart the course for uh, a more green future for the aviation industry. So I think, I think what I would just uh, advise people is that there's uh, a lot of opportunity and the future of the air transport sector is going to need innovative new ideas. Um, and so I would encourage you to pursue your passions because if you can find a job that you love, uh, your world is going to be a lot happier for the, for the rest of your adult life. Um, but I, I will also point out that I know with the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of the information being circulated is is hard you know it's really hard to hear about the layoffs and the furloughs and and people leaving aviation entirely um i i get that there's a tremendous amount of pain um my fear is how that impacts the 16 17 18 year olds who might be considering aviation careers because if you look at our industry on a global scale 
you know, anybody who could take an early retirement during the pandemic would likely have taken an early retirement. Um, training capacities are cut in half. So at the University of Waterloo, our intake for the next two years is at 50% of capacity because of the backlog caused from shutdowns. Um, and then so many people choosing to leave. If anybody you know, could think of another lucrative position outside of flying, a lot of people have left. So there's been this kind of this mass exodus out of aviation. And yet, if you look back to January of 2020, we were facing shortages of aviation professionals then, before the pandemic. So, so I know it doesn't feel like it now, but I think there's going to be a lot of demand for aviation talent once the recovery happens. Uh, I heard today uh, on the media that one economist was projecting it, uh, they called it like an elastic band recovery, where they think there's so much pent up demand for all sorts of different things that once the vaccine takes hold that we might see, you know, a really um, almost explosive regrowth and like who knows we can't project or, or predict what the future holds nobody knows for certain i hope i hope it gets better I, I hope you know there are blue skies on the horizon um but i do think for young people we as an industry really do need to do what we can to support them and i i would hope that we could look at a sector ladder for aviation and one specifically in Canada, so that those with the expertise and the knowledge of how aviation works across our country can help map that out for young people and, and ease it, as well as looking at some of the barriers that have always been there around things like the, the cost of flight training, um, that they're, my colleague in the UK has been looking at fully funded um, training options where you owe sort of a, a term of service uh, to an organization afterwards for a period of years, like the military's uh, historically done here in Canada. Um, but I think that we need to get a little bit creative and, and innovative and, and make sure that we are preparing uh, for the future now while we have time and resources to do so. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory from any point in your career? So when I when I first started teaching, um, it's interesting if you're a university professor, because unlike grade school or high school teachers where you go to teachers college for a year and they teach you how to teach, they don't do that in universities. They assume if you have a master's degree or a Ph.D. that you just know how to teach. Um, and so when I taught for the first time, of course, you're very green and very new and, and, and I didn't know as well what I was doing. Um, but I remember it took me years <laughs> and I, I apologize now to any of the students I had at Western during that time if they think I didn't do a great job. But um, but I remember the very first time like I teach three hour lectures and I remember the very first time I taught a lecture and I had everybody's eyes up the whole time. That for me was like probably the most impactful memory I have because I remember driving home uh, and calling my husband and being like, I had the entire class like for the whole three hours. And like, this is before cell phones were super popular. <laughs> so so that'd be even harder now. Uh, but, uh, but I remember what it felt like and it felt like I earned it. You know, it felt like, you know, you had to, you worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. And when I finally was able to accomplish that, that, that was a really big deal for me. Everyone I know who has been a student of yours has really, really enjoyed the classes you've uh, taught. And so I can imagine from the professor's perspective, knowing that your students are engaged and enjoying the material that you're presenting would also just be a real rock star moment. 
Yeah, well, it's fun. And also, you learn, like you, you, you start to, uh, you know, people develop their expertise. So if I was flying every day, of course, you'd learn like all of the little minute intricacies of that make up your profession. But, but for me, the teaching part was huge, because uh, I can tell even when my I have student groups presenting, I can look at, at the audience and in a snapshot, depending on how many eyes you see up and engaged, whether the students have lost the crowd or whether they still have them. And, and that usually plays into, you know, the grades that students get. I'm not the hardest grader in the world, but but it, it does influence, um, you know, how well they're doing. Um, but it's not something that's intuitive to everybody. You know, sometimes you think, uh, like you see so many uh, presentations, uh, whether you're at a conference or in a classroom, where people are just kind of talking to themselves, like they're, you know, eyes down and all of the audience's eyes are down as well. And you no, know, when you're able to effectively like tell those stories and and take them with you and you feel like it was worthwhile both for you and and the audience yeah that that feels really good now before we go today where can our listeners find you on social media all right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so if anyone would like to stay in touch with me, I'm, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. But if you are an aviation enthusiast, I will be happy to connect with you on LinkedIn and, and then we can stay in touch. And uh, that's usually where I share any updates on uh, new projects or presentations or different work that I'm doing. Uh, and on Instagram, I'm uh, Kearns4444. So four fours. <laughs> and I'll be happy to connect with them there. And I will make sure we have the links available for our listeners in the episode description. Dr. Suzanne Kearns, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.